2: This is the Game Football podcast from the Times. Today, were England fans right to boo Harry Maguire after England's win over Ivory Coast at Wembley? We'll talk about Jude Bellingham, Ollie Watkins and more. Also, five substitutes could come into the Premier League for next season. Does that benefit the game? We'll also be asking Alisson this week. We'll discuss Yaya Torre and one touch wonders. This is the Game. Hello again. Welcome back to the game podcast. I'm Hugh Woodson alongside Alison Rudd and Tom Clark this week. Loads for us to discuss. Let's begin with the football. Yes, the football that took place at Wembley England three Ivory Coast nil. Thanks to an all-too-predictable red card for Serge Aurier. wasn't that great a game, to be honest, but it does mean uh, England are now 22 matches unbeaten, inside 90 minutes for all of the sticklers out there. Yes, we know they lost the penalty shootout, but things are going quite well under Gareth Southgate. Um, and, and so really, we can look ahead to the World Cup and to his best 11, like we pretty much did on the last podcast, but we now have, thanks to 10 changes, a whole new host of new players to discuss. So thank you, Gareth, for those amendments to your starting 11. Let's talk about Jack Grealish and Raheem Sterling first. I thought Sterling was great. I thought Grealish fantastic. Grealish on the left, Sterling on the right. There'll be a song about that, I'm sure. But can they play together? This is why I wanted to start with these two, because they could be key for England with both of them in the starting 11. What do you think, Tom?
1: Absolutely. I think it's interesting you mentioned Jack Grealish there. And I was reflecting on the podcast earlier in the week and are excited to talk about Connor Gallagher, which fully justifiable, he's having a great season. It's always nice to see England debutants, But I actually think when we think about the progression of this England side, packed with talent as it is from the Euros, you know, Jack Grealish came into that Euros as a superstar from the Premier League. But, you know, this, this player for um, Aston Villa on his way to a big move and he couldn't quite get it right for England he couldn't quite get in the team and I think it's more more than the likes of Connor Gallagher and and these players breaking through it's the kind of evolution and growth and the increasing maturity if you like of players like Jack Grealish that I think is far more significant for Southgate in this period Take take the Sterling goal as a great great example that a Grealish is going up a few notches and becoming more mature at international level. And B that he can play with Sterling. You know, that 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 goal, Sterling's running through. There's a clear pass to his left for Grealish to play play the ball to the left. Grealish knocks it across the box. You've got your classic Pep Guardiola goal. Sterling shoots. The ball drops in the air to Grealish. You're all everyone I'm sure was thinking the same as me. He's gonna volley this. And he plays a beautiful ball. You know, cross-field kind of half-volley pass for Sterling. And you could see Sterling was going, sorry, mate, I really didn't deserve that pass. But that, to me, was really significant. Ditto with the, um, the penalty that ended up not being given. But that was Grealish, again, dummying the ball, running into the box for Bellingham. And then the penalty was given and, of course, overturned. But, yeah, I think Jack Grealish, particularly in this game, and as the season progresses, playing for Manchester City, having his place questioned, having that big price tag questioned, that kind of growth is really significant for Gareth Southgate, particularly when you think about the likes of Marcus Rashford, Jadon Sancho struggling. So I think, you know, you're looking, you're looking at a position where Grealish and Sterling and Kane, and I'm sure we'll come to a debate about Jude Bellingham, But then if you throw in Phil Foden and say, right, those four with two behind, that could be the
2: starting front four for England. I don't think England are dangerous enough with Jack Grealish in starting eleven, As good a player oh, as he is, I just don't think. I, I think you look at a front three, we could have a terrific front three, bags of goals. I think it would have to include Raheem Sterling. It would have to include Harry Kane. And then you put Grealish in the next category, really, for me. There's Phil Foden. You mentioned some of the players there. Bukayo Saka. You know, some of them are just a little bit more direct and more of a goal threat in particular.
1: I agree, but I just think that If you talk about categories, I agree. Sterling, Kane are in the definites. Then you have a category of nearly definites, of which that is a growing category. But the likes of Jane and Sancho and Marcus Rashford are no longer in that category. And I think Jack Grealish has reached that category, if you like. If we're doing a kind of tiering system for England's plethora of attacking talent, (laughs) I think Grealish has gone up from the game-changer sub to that. I really need to try and get him in alongside Phil Foden, Mason Mount um, and Bukaya Saka, as you say.
0: Tom, why do you think Gareth Southgate is going to have this almost, it represents a U-turn view on Grealish what was quite evident from the Euros was that Southgate has a problem with him whether it's his attitude, his behaviour in training, him listening to his instructions, there was something not connecting between the manager and the player there, even though there was an absolute clamour. If you remember, Grealish was going to be that spark of ingenuity and fearlessness, because that's what often hampers England, is being weighed down by expectation. And, And Grealish has that sort of wonderful personality where he looks like he really, really isn't weighed down by anything. And in fact, the more pressure you put on him the better but he's not he's not being I mean I don't think he could be used as a number one player by Pep Guardiola because he doesn't act that way Guardiola he likes to rotate and give players a long time to earn the right to be considered regulars under him but I mean come the World Cup I don't think there's I don't think I, I don't know that he's moved up the rankings as you as you put it or will have moved up the rankings as you put it that evidently I I just don't I don't see what's different. He's at City and he wasn't at City, but he's not. He's not I don't think he's proving at City. That you don't think he's that good,
2: be... Alison? Just say. No, yeah, right. I do. No, I like, not, I, like, I,
0: like, I like Jack Grealish a lot, but I thought, yeah, I just don't see the evidence that Southgate is going to promote him as heavily as Tom seems to think he will.
1: I don't necessarily think that Southgate is going to put him in the team for definite. I just think that the goals that he was involved in and some of the play and by the World Cup, having had a year and a half, not only with Pep Guardiola, but with Phil Foden and with Raheem Sterling playing together, training together every day when those two are probably in front of him in the pecking order for England. That is significant. I think he will always be that Jack Grealish player that you described that he was before the Euros. But I think when you think of the, some of the qualities that Southgate admires in players, say like Mason Mount, who doesn't quite have the same box office as Phil Foden or Jack Grealish. I think that perhaps Grealish is adding some of that maturity to his play, some of that elite professionalism, if you like, that isn't very exciting, doesn't make a YouTube reel, but you know, ultimately, in a big tournament in the World Cup, will become a big factor. I'm not saying he's definitely first name on the, you know, in my starting eleven for definite. I just think it's significant that as Hugh picked him out there has been an incremental improvement in his chances of being in that starting 11.
0: But are you basing that on what you saw against the Ivory Coast or what, what are you basing that on? Because that, that wasn't a real match, was it? I mean, let's well, I mean it.
1: it wasn't a real match, but I still think the opportunity when that ball drops to either take it on the volley, do a flick turn and try to shoot yourself or do a very clever, simple pass back to your teammate who just didn't pass to you when he should have done for him to tap in. That is perhaps something that Jack Grealish wouldn't have done 12 months ago that perhaps he does now because he's used to being in that environment with these kind of players and makes slightly more mature decisions. So I'm basing it slightly on... I think when
0: it comes down to it, Southgate will err on the side of caution and I think he'll be scared to start Grealish in a game against a team that are class.
1: I take your point, but that's where I'm slightly coming from is that I think little moments like that and being with City a more elite club playing in the Champions League, give you those ingredients that stop managers like Southgate going, I'm not quite sure he's ready for a World Cup quarterfinal against whoever. He goes, actually, this guy's played a year and a half in the Champions League. He's shown me he's a bit more mature. I can put him in. That's that's the only argument I'm making. I think it's just I'm basing it on his time at City. You know, he's not he's not been amazing at City this season, but I don't think that necessarily matters. I think it will be significant for his career development. And I think performances like the one last night, agreed against in a friendly against ten men, but I still think I saw moments
2: there of an growing maturity at that kind of elite level. he has got an awkward style, Grealish. I'm not sure he's. <laughs> a I'm not. Do you know what? I'm not sure he's a game changer. I think he's just an elegant, lovely footballer. If he starts and it doesn't go well for him, which it couldn't, he's not he's not someone that we've seen, you know, really tearing apart Champions League or international football. I think if there's 10 minutes left and you need a goal and you've got Foden on the bench and you've got Saka on the bench or even someone like Calvert-Lewin or Bamford, I, I don't think he comes on, to be perfectly honest. I, I think he would come on under Gareth Southgate, but I don't think I don't think he would necessarily impact the game in that way because he has such a specific style, and it and it you know others that can just run behind and get a shot off, brilliant, bring them on ten minutes, we need a goal, you know, we haven't really got a target man for example, but if we had one, that's you know someone that could cause a bit of trouble, you know something a bit different, and you think if we bring Jack Grealish on with a goal to get with 10 minutes left what is he going to give us and you're thinking that one moment maybe he gets you an assist but is he that threatening i don't i don't think so i, I didn't want to labor it but go ahead tom No, but it's just very quickly on that point because
1: I think you you touched on Calvert-Lewin and you, you didn't use the term plan B, but it always comes up, doesn't it? I actually think England under Southgate, with this level of quality players in these attacking positions, you don't necessarily want a plan B. You want plan A tweaked. And you do that by having players who are similarly skillful, similarly elite, similarly experienced, but do the same role differently. So Phil Foden and Jack Grealish are both attacking players who play across the front three but they play completely differently. So you could have Phil Foden starting and then for 20 minutes, if you need a goal, replace him with Jack Grealish, who will do a similar role in a completely different way and might provide a defender who's had 70 minutes of marking Phil Foden with a completely different problem and get you the goal. That that that's all I'm saying. I'm just putting him in that category. So you mean Plan A. I rather than moving on something to something like to plan... that. we can work on it. We've got a lot of time to pilot this, <laughs> you know. And I, I'm sure Gareth will be enjoying the fact that we're heaping praise on him as well, and particularly from you, Hugh, that you started this podcast so full of praise for your favourite manager, Gareth Southgate. But yeah, you we've know, got we've got time, yeah. we've got time mm. to work on it, haven't we? The plan, <laughs> the plan A. Point
2: two. Someone who is immediately now in Plan A for a loss of fans after his performance against Ivory Coast. Such is the fickle nature of football fandom, which we'll come to, I'm sure, in more detail. Jude Bellingham, not even 19 years old until June, the Borussia Dortmund midfielder. He needs to be given a chance to start now for England, doesn't he? There's injury issues, of course, for Calvin Phillips. Jordan Henderson, I don't think, is the player he used to be in many ways. I mean, this is the next great central midfield talent from from England. This is the next Gerrard, isn't it, Alison Rudd? I mean, he needs to start, doesn't he?
0: I'd say maybe if I knew where he was supposed to play for England, but I don't know where you'd put him. Even Jack Grealish said afterwards, oh, we can play anywhere, but I don't think that's very helpful, really, is it? Because (laughs) it's not helpful. He plays, he doesn't play in the Premier League. I think if you do play in the Premier League, you get a better sense of... Well, that would give everyone a better sense of where he would fit in for England I think and the fact he's so adaptable makes him an excellent utility player to have in the squad I'm sure but I I I, I, I basically I need to see much more of him to know how he dovetails with what is considered the bulk of the likely the likely candidates to make the the first team for England I don't I don't know. It looks, I mean, you know, I'm also slightly cynical about the amount of hype around him because we do this all the time. Every single, you find me a tournament that England have qualified for and tell me there wasn't one player that is falling into this. They're young and exciting and they're going to save England. I mean, he looked okay against a team that were a bit distracted and probably a bit despondent that they hadn't qualified for the World Cup and they were down to 10 men for a lot of the game. I don't, it's hype and it's not helpful at all. But where he would be best placed maybe if he's that blooming good he can just fit in where we ha- where we, where England end up having a gap because I don't know for sure that he should play he played number 10 I suppose last night didn't he so I haven't really got enough evidence to know that that works for England to be quite honest and I really object I really object to the hype it's not good for him.
2: Okay, all right. Well, we can we can talk about that hype if you want to, but as a player, he definitely fits in beside a Declan Rice. I mean, Gareth Southgate said it's his job to get in, uh, to turn England after the Euros into a more attacking force. Jude Bellingham and Connor Gallagher, to be perfectly honest, provide a level of dynamism, I think, in that England midfield and the ability to go forward. Yes, Calvin Phillips, we all know he's a great passer of the ball and he wins it back in a fantastic way, but we've got Declan Rice there and we need, we maybe need a box-to-boxer. Connor Gallagher, fantastic in breaking up play and charging forward. I think you get a midfield, an extra midfield runner in Jude Bellingham. We know he's famous for wearing 22 because at Birmingham City, they said you could play as a four, you could play as an eight, you could play as a number 10. And that's how he ended up uh, with the number 22. But I think as a partner for Declan Rice, as a player that we want to go box to box, that can be in that starting lineup. When we play against the teams that we should dominate, and also against the ones that maybe we expect to be dominant over us, I think Jude Bellingham—he uh, almost has to be given the opportunity in the Nations League, the four games—to prove his worth as a genuine England starter. He is good enough, I promise you. He's good enough, Tom. If, J-
0: if James, if James Ward-Prowse was playing in Germany, we'd be saying, "Oh, he's got a start, has not he? Look what, look what he can do! His passing's amazing. His—if
2: he was at 18 years old, maybe, yeah.
0: Why is it necessary for it to be a teenager? i mean come
2: on we're only no, talking about i'm just talking about, about, hype. I'm, just talking about <laughs> hype. I'm agreeing i'm agreeing that we would say that if we would certainly be saying that if Jed ward prouse was was 18 years old and playing exactly the same way but playing in germany i agree with you oh, it's, this is all going beautifully me and allison
1: can fall out over Grealish, you two can fall out of bellingham i'll play medi- mediator this time there is a lot of hype around him allison's right and in lots of ways Hugh, you've teed up Bellingham in the same way that you you and other people who host podcasts and TV shows would have teed up Jack Grealish a year ago, let's be honest. And he is in the same position that Jack Grealish is in. Yes, he's playing in the Champions League, which Grealish wasn't, but we still don't know, as Alison says, how he necessarily fits in. And you've got to remember that, yes, Calvin Phillips has been injured. Yes, Jordan Henderson hasn't played as much for Liverpool, but you're talking about displacing those two, which is a big, big ask when it comes to a World Cup. You know, if Calvin Phillips is fit, Calvin Phillips and Declan Rice... You know the two holding midfielders who took England to a Euros final. Like that's a hell of an ass to displace. They them. wouldn't take
2: England near a
1: World Cup final. Not they, they, you would have, You might have said that during the Euros, and then they got them to the final. I look, listen. I think they're both very, very talented holding midfielders. Bellingham is equally talented, if not more so. But Allison makes some valid points, and particularly about James Ward-Prowse, who has an had an excellent season for Southampton. Is very, very consistent. Southgate keeps using him in a very kind of unnoticed way you know and we're talking very excitedly about conor gallagher and now jude bellingham but ward prowse has to be in the conversation as well so if you're saying okay phillips is fit rice definitely starts jordan henderson you probably don't go to a world cup without jordan henderson just purely for his experience you then kind of what two out of the, the other three gallagher bellingham and ward prowse I think I'd probably go Bellingham and Ward Prowse and leave out Conor Gallagher, as harsh as that sounds. Because, and but that's with selecting five central midfielders, which means you're probably going to have to lose uh, an attacking player, of which yeah, there are yeah. loads. So it, it's very difficult. I, I and I do think you know we we talk and we constantly come back to Southgate's. We need a better word than pragmatism, but I can't think of it off the top of my head. With Bellingham, as you say, Hugh, it's it's going to be a very Tough decision for him to make because it, in a lot of senses it will go against his instincts if he were to start him next to declan rice but you you are absolutely right. if he goes for it in the nation's league and gives him a run, then that is Bellingham's chance to stake his claim for that place because if Calvin Phillips isn't fit, then that goes to Allison's argument as it's up to him to fit into the one spot that's left that's the probably probably the one spot that's left if Calvin Phillips
2: isn't fit okay uh, I'm not going to fight the corner for Jude Bellingham anymore because he's going to take that England shirt himself okay and I, I imagine he will in those Nation League games I'm interested to see how the rest of the season goes at Brisha Dortmund and who knows a big move in the summer could come up as well that might affect things for him I'm sure he will but you know Alison and I have
1: started the James Ward Prowse fan club are you in it or are you Connor Gallagher
2: Oh, I was very public about this. I could not believe, I could not believe that James Ward-Prowse was left out of a squad that had four right-backs in it. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) Um, No, I'm being honest. And I watched that final of the Euros and Jordan Henderson came on and was asked to press. James Ward-Prowse, last season, statistically the best presser Fitness-wise, one of the the top central midfielders in the Premier League and his success rate at pressing higher than anyone else and he was sitting at home watching or sitting on the beach watching it on on a TV – I just found it to be utterly ridiculous. You asked Henderson to come on and do something that's not his natural game. You had James Ward-Prowse there, who I think is good enough to play for England. And I, I, I couldn't believe it. I, look, it's good to see James Ward-Prowse in England squads, but ultimately doesn't get used, doesn't give, isn't given the trust. And then suddenly it's like, do you want to start against Andorra and get yourself another England cap? And he's good and he's solid, but he's playing against semi-pros, if not amateurs. No, he's been... Underused and I think underrated for a long time, James Ward-Prowse. So yes,
0: if only he'd scored with that lovely, lovely shot last night, then maybe more people would be on our, on our, in our club. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but if it came down to Ward-Prowse or Bellingham, I would take Bellingham. I would Ward- take Bellingham. Oh, you Gallagher. see that's, you're, you're, doing you know what you're doing you're
0: choosing you're choosing what ifery over what you know which is ridiculous
2: (laughs) no 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 the reason is I think if it's a choice between Ward-Prowse and Bellingham we're talking about the last position in midfield and we're talking about a player that may be used very very sparingly at the World Cup if we if it comes down to Ward-Prowse or Bellingham in which case I would take Jude Bellingham for the experience of being there, even though he's very uh, unlikely to play a, a big part. So it would be based Henderson on the then. future. Leave out, leave out Henderson then. Because no, I think Henderson will, would play a pretty meaty role in the team if I brought Henderson because you would need him. That's what I mean. Let's be perfectly honest here. Declan Rice is going to start the vast majority of games. You know, I imagine that if Calvin Phillips is fit, he will be on the plane as well. Then there's Jordan Henderson. And then you're talking about two others, central midfield players who are probably there for training purposes and to get a bit of experience for the future. I would pick, you know, maybe two young players to come with you. If not, who knows, Ward-Prowse and Bellingham, and everyone's happy. <laughs> sure, All sure, right? sure.
0: Let's pick a player at his peak. No, no, let's not. Let's p- pick a player who we have no idea what his peak looks like. That is illogical.
2: Would you
1: pick James Ward-Prowse over Jordan Henderson if you had to?
0: If I had to, I would, yeah. So that shows, doesn't it? Because I'm Liverpool that fan. That shows, so Wow. Well.
1: Wow, CEO and president of the
2: James Ward Prowse fan club, Alison Rhodes. There you go. Mm-hmm. I wonder if any of us are in the Ollie Watkins fan club, okay? Because that's our fi- the final player I wanted to mention from this is Ollie Watkins because I was watching his interview afterwards and he said, "I've done all I can," and I just thought, "No, you haven't. You haven't made <laughs> if that. If that no, if that is you doing all you can, then you're not good enough." He had a couple of good touches in the game against Ivory Coast. He linked up pretty well with Raheem Sterling. He got himself a goal as well. He was in the right position. I've got to say it was a very good piece of movement, but he was drafted in late to this squad. He hasn't really, he's been given a pretty decent opportunity by Gareth Southgate. He, again, I don't think he's going to change a game off the bench. He is a much of a muchness when you think about Bamford when you think about Calvert Lewin, you know they're all okay forwards and actually I think out of all of them he's he's the least natural striker. And he's still learning that role and he hasn't played that role for more than I think two and a half seasons. So it's not nothing to do with Ollie Watkins. I just think the others are natural center forwards and actually provide a little bit more as long as they're a hundred percent fit. I mean, that's for me, that is the the major plus point for Ollie Watkins is that he he pretty much stays fit all the time, runs the channels, good strength, good speed. Then if you're bringing him for a body, then fine. But, um, but I, but no, but genuinely this is nothing against Ollie Watkins. I just think I was waiting for this camp for, and I thought he has to, He ha, with the others injured and coming back from injury in, in Calvert-Lewin and, uh, and Bamford, you know, this is his opportunity. And I just don't think he really grabbed it by the horns to be perfectly honest. I'd be surprised if he gets called up in the next squad or the World Cup. Unless, of course, he starts scoring every week, but he's just not a natural goal scorer. I I was just a little bit disappointed. I did want him to do well. Is anyone believing that he should be on the plane to Qatar or at least given another opportunity, Tom? No, well, I mean,
1: a lot of my laughing was based on the fact that I I agree with you. We have to remember that a former uh, striker of a fairly high level, Tony Cascarino, picked Ollie Watkins out as one of the strikers that he rates in the Premier League. So uh, it shows what me and you know. Hugh, (laughs) I I think I thought about this before coming on and it's very difficult to think about the backup to Harry Kane when Harry Kane is one of the best strikers in the world. And seemingly when it comes to England plays every bloody minute, like, I mean, what's he doing coming off the bench? It's absolutely madness. I know, Um, that was ridiculous. uh, Crazy. But, yeah, I like Watkins as a player, but I think when you're talking about that list, look, there's going to be some very significant fitness work going on at Leeds between now uh, and the World Cup and the likes of uh, Calvin Phillips and Patrick Bamford getting up to speed, if both of them can, particularly Bamford and like Jack Grealish, both of them have been players that I questioned in the past. I'm fully on board the Patrick Bamford fan club now because I think, going back to my point about plan A, point two, you don't necessarily want like a Calvert-Lewin to you know, take Harry Kane off for ten minutes, and all of a sudden, start lumping balls up to Dominic Calvert Lewin. That's I've never really seen a game at elite level where you go that much the other way from what you've been playing the whole time. And so, if if we wanted a striker who could come close to kind of the, the dropping deep, linking play, but also having a goal scoring ability and probably a pressing ability. Better than Harry Kane and the rest of those strikers, I'd go Patrick Bamford. Oh,
0: but the championships, the championships, very tough divisions. So I think oh, Bamford might be a bit tired it. come November She's gone
2: for it. <laughs> <laughs> she's still. still and and Calvert Lewin down. after and Watford Calver and Burley yeah, turned their seasons down. around completely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> Listen, that was all I really wanted to say about Ollie Watkins. We'll see if he does get another opportunity with a three lined crest on his chest, if you like. Up next, we have to talk about, in fact, what was the big story after the game. Yes, a very normal. Straightforward win for England over Ivory Coast, slightly overshadowed and has made a lot of headlines after a small section of fans inside Wembley booed uh, in the build up to the game and the first few touches of Manchester United's Harry Maguire. Gareth Southgate afterwards calling it a joke of a reception. Declan Rice, a total embarrassment. Jordan Henderson said he and all of his teammates at the England squad were fortunate to share a dressing room with Harry Maguire. He's had lots of support from those in the England squad, including the captain, Harry Kane as well, all very outspoken defending Harry Maguire. Um, And maybe that's made it an even bigger story than it was. But we know what England players in the past have gone through. So does anyone think maybe acceptable is the wrong word? It's just one of those things that happens in football and we shouldn't think too much about it. What do you think, Alison?
0: I think it's completely unacceptable. And you could make the case, well, you can't tell fans what to do. They've turned up. They have every right to express their opinion. They're paying good money to watch the game, and especially when they're paid midweek for a game that's a so friendly that isn't really a contest because Ireco is down to ten men, so it's a spectacle. It's not fantastic. They've got, you know, they have the right. They've bought the tickets. But I don't think normal rules of capitalism apply with football. I think if you turn up as an England fan, you support the team. Certainly, you support the team before they kick to the ball. It's so counterproductive to, boot, to pick on one player and he's clearly being picked on because he's having a tough tough season with Manchester United. He's been pilloried by all manner of former Man United players who are now pundits. He has become a bit of a joke. He already had the Slabhead nickname, which was like seen as... Um, uh, sort of a friendly sort of thing and comical thing, kindly comical thing to say. But as soon as he's having a poor, poor season, he's just become sort of cartoonish figure. He's, a, he's somebody that probably has a very good relationship with the manager. Managers do need their defenders to do as they're told, to understand what they're trying to say. Their role in the dressing room is very important. It's just what does it achieve to make a player having a bad time feel doubly bad about the season, to be booed before he's even kicked a ball. It's it's just that element of England fans that make me embarrassed to be English most of the time. And that was just another thing in a long list of things I hate about England fans. It's just an appalling thing to do. And I'm not a huge Harry Maguire fan, but I just think that was dreadful.
1: There's a couple of things to mention that Alison has already touched on. It is, of course you know, an example of the ludicrous nature of England fans themselves that as we have just proved with our discussion and as the results under Gareth Southgate prove and as the, you know, tournament finishes proof, there's arguably not been a better time to be an England football fan for many, many years, many decades even. Um, so it's almost like some small section of the support has to find a reason to be negative, And that is the fact that Harry Maguire is struggling for Manchester United and therefore we will pick on it. The second thing is, I think it was quite telling, as you say, Hugh, the reaction of the players and of Southgate. And it's another example of that very clever kind of club mentality that he has managed to engender with an international setup. You know, these players that traditionally didn't get on, et cetera, et cetera, kicked lumps out of each other in the premier league. The kind of thing that Roy Keane hates. He's got this kind of club mentality of backing the player to the absolute hilt. But the one thing I would say was that I was speaking to Tony Cascarino this morning, who along with John Barnes have both written pieces about being booed as players that you can read on the times website. Now, and in the paper, and both of them essentially come to the conclusion that the reaction from the players and from Southgate was a little bit over the top, just in terms of yes, it's ridiculous, but players get booed all the time. Tony Cascarino tells great stories about when he joined Chelsea because he replaced Kerry Dixon, who was an absolute club legend. On his debut, before he even played, they read out his name and, you know, joining Chelsea, Tony Cascarino, boo. They booed him at Stanford Bridge before he even kicked a ball. Dennis Wise ran the length of the pitch to, you know, nudge him in the ribs and joke with him. Oh, they love you here, don't they, Tony? And there was a bloke who sat behind the dugout at Stanford Bridge, who every time Tony got up to get to warm up, before he could even warm up, he went, oh no, sod off, not you, Cascarino. And like every single time, this was in the early days. So that in itself is also ridiculous, but... And Tony tells a great story about how he kind of confronted the guy, which I won't I won't spoil for you, so I'll make you go and read it for once. But it was interesting to me, speaking to Tony and then reading John Barnes, that they both kind of came to the conclusion that it's a little bit over the top and that, yes, it's ridiculous, but a player at the very elite level should just be able to kind of brush off booing a little bit. When we factor in all the obviously all the horrendous abuses that go on particularly in modern football with social media and all that kind of stuff booing in a stadium is ludicrous and kind of should be treated as such with a idiots move on
2: yeah i thought it was i agree with with everything alison said and and yourself i thought it was totally unnecessary totally unhelpful why on earth would you boo a player who's that meant to help i do also believe that the responses on social media. I think it was great that the players did defend their teammate and Gareth Southgate defended Harry Maguire as well. And I think you would expect them to do that. But for we as journalists, I think that gives us more material to write stories and more things to discuss as well. I don't blame the players for doing it whatsoever. I think it's natural instinct, but it does give fuel to the story as well.
1: Just a very quick thing that you've made me think there, Hugh, is something else Tony Cascarino said, which was that at Chelsea, that kind of reception that he got at the start... Made him in a very short time that he was at the club, but made him want to prove them wrong. And that by the end of his time at Chelsea, he'd actually won the fans over, including that guy who sat behind the dugout and shouted and swore at him every game. And actually, when he left, he got lots of letters saying, "You know, it was never perfect, but you always tried." I half wonder whether, given the time that Harry Maguire is having at the minute in his career, you as a Manchester United fan know this. You think of David Beckham after the World Cup and the support that he got from Manchester United and the fans. I'd be very interested to see the reception Harry Maguire gets from Man United fans after this, in terms of the fact that the public mood is now behind him, if you like. You know, these we're all journalists, we follow the kind of swings of the story. It now feels like everyone's behind Harry Maguire. After <laughs> let's be honest, we've all slagged him off for how crap he's been for ages, <laughs> which you know, but he has. He's been poor. He's been poor for a long time. But now a group of idiots have booed him playing for England, for whom he's not been particularly bad and, you know, has been a big part of the success. And now everyone's going to go, let's get behind Harry. Come on, let's get behind him. And so both at club level, he'll maybe get a bit more support. And certainly, as Gareth Southgate has already proved, he will back him to the hill. And I half wonder whether, (laughs) in a weird way, it'll be a good thing for Harry Maguire going forward.
0: I mean, those, those fans who actually genuinely were not drunk, but were booing because they genuinely, deeply feel that Harry Maguire is not good enough to pull on an England shirt, they have done the exact wrong thing because I think Southgate is more likely to pick him and keep on picking him now.
2: This is the thing. I have to say that I don't think Harry Maguire was really being booed. And I'm glad you told the Tony Cascarino story because I don't think Tony was really being booed. I think the fans were expressing their dislike of the selection, if you like, the decision. They just didn't like the fact that Kerry Dixon had left Chelsea and they were trying to voice that they didn't like Kerry, the fact that Kerry Dixon was there anymore. And the England fans that did boo Harry Maguire were trying to voice Gareth Southgate that they don't think he should be in the team. I think it was more, it was about his form at Manchester United and not his form for his country. I know there are obviously fans that go to England who have club affiliation and they think their player should be starting and there's a little bit of that as well. Who knows, it might be a big load of of Arsenal fans who think Ben White should be taking his place. I don't know, whoever it might be. But I do think it was an expression of, you know unhappiness with the fact that Harry Maguire will persist as an England starter rather than a major criticism of, of Harry Maguire that's how I read the situation anyway and I know he'll take it personally but I don't think it was I think it was towards Gareth Looking forward to the book coming out this summer to rival
1: Alison Rudd's Fifty Shades of Booing Your Explanation to <laughs> Fan Reactions by Hugh Woodencroft No because I think I think you're right I think you're right I think but but ultimately I'd say that perhaps Tony Cascarino would say yeah look I get it Kerry Dixon's gone but it's still not great for me when you read my name out and i get booed so yeah uh, but i think as allison says we referenced it when we were discussing Maguire's position because you know let's be honest we were discussing it and saying good mark gray he get in the team should ben white be kicking him out of the team because he's been poor and we discussed the fact that southgate likes this no i'll stand by you all the way this has just added fuel to that fire harry Maguire has probably put himself above harry kane and raheem
2: sterling in terms of being first name on the team sheet now I think he has. Um, and look, let's hope he gets some sort of boost from the support he's been given. And 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 has that incredible form that spur Manchester United on to fifth in the Premier League at the end of this season because they deserve it. Um and listen, we'll be talking about England much more, of course, at the end of the season when they go off to the Nations League. But all in all, I thought it was a pretty positive international break albeit tinged by the booing of Harry Maguire at the end of it more to come I'm sure from Gareth Southgate and his squad in the coming months and more to come on the game podcast as well but remember if you're enjoying it rate us leave us a review and make sure you're subscribed
0: it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about
2: Up next on the game, a decision which I am devastated to report because Premier League clubs are set to make a U-turn tomorrow and agree to five substitutions per team being permitted from next season. A story Martin Ziga brought you exclusively in the Times. The issue is due to be voted on by the top flight clubs at a Premier League stakeholders meeting after several attempts after the past two years to increase the number of replacements were defeated. At the time, bigger clubs were in favour. There were strong opposition from smaller and medium sized teams who believed it would give an advantage to the squads with a greater strength in depth. And of course the premier league at the moment, the only major league in Europe sticking with three substitutions. Uh, And the reason that I am so disappointed with this, and I know that people who watch football in those other big leagues don't think there has been a major change, but I truly believe unless in some way these substitutions have strict rules about how they're used it changes the sport of football quite significantly. It really does. I mean, I said to a mate, I mean, if you're winning 1-0, it's the cup final, we all want a grandstand finish. Someone's got four subs left and they just want to break up play. So in the last 10 minutes, every two minutes, they bring a substitute on and they just wait. The players just walk off slowly and just waste another 30 seconds. And those grandstand finishes, we just don't get. I just, you know, and that's just one of the reasons why I still believe it's a terrible idea. But um, you guys can tell me what you think. <laughs> well, the only thing I can say is that I can only assume
1: that when this news brought to you first by Martin Ziegler, is confirmed Pep Guardiola, Jürgen Klopp, and Thomas Tuchel will all grant sit-down, happy, clappy, exclusive interviews with the hard-working reporters like Alison Rudd, who've had to sit through endless press conferences of them moaning and droning on and on and on about this. They've got what they want. Let's have a nice sit-down interview where they tell us what favorite bag of crisps they like, you know, what Netflix drama they're watching, because this is a big win for them. As you say, Hugh, those scenarios that you paint the picture of that makes me feel uncomfortable you could if you wanted to paint a scenario where there's 20 minutes left you've got the luxury of having a squad depth that allows you to do this and you make five subs that literally change the gets turn the game on its head so that's the counterpoint to your you know quite reasonable point about the wasting time and things I don't like it. I'm, I must confess. I know that Alison doesn't like it as well. So before this podcast, I was trying to think of reasons why I do like it, and so that's why. Well, I there's kind of the player
2: welfare. That. There is the player there, welfare. There is, there is the player welfare. I think you should have two subs at halftime out of your five that are exclusively for player welfare. So two of them you use at halftime, and you genuinely use them for player rotation, and that is that is why you are being given the two extra substitutions to help players out and give them less time on the pitch. So that means four players on the afternoon that play 45 minutes or less. I
1: definitely think if we're we're going to go down this route, there is something to be done around your first point about that time-wasting thing, i.e., you know, once it passes 85 minutes and if you've only used one, you can only use two more. After, after 85, I I, th- I genuinely think that's a very sensible suggestion. But because it's a sensible suggestion, it won't be factored into these um, these new rules. So uh, we can keep dreaming on that point of view. Yeah, I, I don't like it. I think with my supporting the smaller clubs hat on, I think it does ultimately favor the bigger teams with the stronger squads. Again, trying to think of a counterpoint to that. There are a lot of pretty strong squads in the Premier League these days. I mean, you know, you think about Newcastle, they're going to have an incredibly strong squad next season. You're probably talking about it it hampering about six, seven, seven clubs who haven't got a squad strong enough where they'd actually go, do you know
2: what? I quite fancy having five subs. Well, that was Thomas Frank's argument. He said, I want five subs as well because I can change things tactically. If we're playing Manchester City and we can barely touch the ball, I can get five sets of fresh legs on. It will help me. And if there is a gap, that gap will stay the same because we both get five substitutions and our substitutions should still have the same gap in quality. Quality is our our first eleven, But I do think it changes the sport. And and I saw a great suggestion under Martin Ziegler's story of at least two of the subs needing to be homegrown players, which I thought was quite an interesting one as well. If you are going to have more game time given out each week in the Premier League, why not have more homegrown players being used, even though most of them are French and Spanish. But still, uh, Alison Rudd. What are your thoughts you know, on it? All? Well,
0: this is this is the first time in history I've disagreed with Thomas Frank. But I mean that it, it it isn't equal, is it? The substitutes that Brentford, who are on the lowest wage bill in the Premier League, the substitutes they can bring on, they'll be the same number of substitutes. A team like Man City, they can have far more expensive and better players on the bench. You're increasing the gap with every substitute made when you're playing a small club in the Premier League versus the bigger club in the Premier League. So, yes, I'm sure Thomas Frank likes the idea of testing his tactical acumen and being able to move things around, but it's not fair. There's no there's no, it's not it's not equality there and who who's coming off the bench. So, it does favor the haves over the have not relatively speaking. Also, I the whole thing's been brought through on a wave of the tagline of player welfare. But there is, <laughs> that's just so spurious because th- th- there's no way managers are going to be suddenly far more avuncular than they were when they were three, uh, there were three substitutes. If you need to win a game and you're the way it's panning out, you're going to keep all your players on the pitch because you've got your best players on the pitch. You feel it's going well. You feel that making a change probably would play into the opposition's hands. You're not going to make that substitution because you suddenly are thinking about player welfare. And I'm not talking about broken legs or hamstrings. Obviously, you can't carry on with those. It's not that sort of welfare, being tired and being pushed too hard. If a manager thinks you're tired, but you're still his best option to win a match, you will stay on the pitch, whether you've got five substitutes, Access to five, access to eight, access to 116. You're going to keep on the players you think will win the game. I just think that it's a slight red herring, the player welfare thing. That'll happen sometimes, but only when the manager has the luxury of feeling the game's in the bag. Also, also, finally, watching, <laughs> watching these when you when I've been sitting through Carabao Cup and FA Cup games where we already have the five subs. So it's just, this isn't going to be a huge shock to the system because it's we've seen it already here for domestic games, It's it's, it's stop, it does actually stop being a football match for a while and you end up thinking, well, who's come on for who there? And why is that? You're trying to work out why it's happening. If it's one sub in the 55th minute, you can work out why it's happening. But when there's this flurry of substitutions from 65 minutes onwards in batches and you're thinking, I don't know, I don't know I don't, a, I don't know who's coming on for who, because it's all done in a... They often do it at the same time, both teams. All these boards up in the air. You don't know whether it's tactical. Did someone, did someone pick up a slight knock? Ultimately, you end up thinking, oh, my goodness, the manager is thinking about the game next Sunday and not the game I'm watching. I want him to be thinking about the game I'm watching, not the game he's planning for in five days' time. So I, it's, I, it stops it being football.
2: There are benefits, some would argue, aside from the player welfare as well, in that maybe the quality of games, the energy, the pace in the final 20 minutes is higher. If there are, I mean, if essentially, if both teams use all five at the same time, maybe with 25, half an hour to go, that, that half the outfield players you're watching have only been playing for the last 10, 15, 20 minutes as you approach the closing stages. And that should have more energy in the game, Um I, I I disagree with that, but I know there are arguments. And, and listen, most people that watch the other leagues say that there hasn't been a big difference and they haven't noticed a difference. But equally, I would argue, has three subs this season seen, have we all been begging for the extra two? Are players walking off with, with, you know, one leg at the moment? Like what's happening that we so drastically need another two substitutions? I think all the Premier League squads have coped, to be perfectly honest. All this suggests is, they'll want more money to spend on more players um and they'll probably want bigger squads off the back of it and again big premier league clubs hoarding talent will probably continue i I don't see major benefits from it but i don't have a degree in sports science and if you do at hughes and croft if you want and we'll discuss it on social media Uh, listen more still to come on the game podcast stay tuned Up next on the game is a feature that, to be perfectly honest, I don't know why we don't do every single week um, and get you to send your questions in. Maybe that is a new feature, Tom. Anyway, we'll discuss it after the podcast. Um, I'm calling it Ask Alison. There you go. It's very alliterative. And um, and I do listen, we're just going to talk about some of the great work that Alison has done recently. And I, to be honest, I'm always interested in how difficult your job is, Alison, and things that go wrong. But I mean, it, it all looks good in the paper. So you might as well tell us about the positives. You've done two great things of late uh, and much more as well. But in, in particular, we're going to discuss these two things. Um, a, a Yaya Toure interview uh, with the great man himself, ex-Ivory Coast and Manchester City. And One Touch Wonders. Um, Let's talk about Yaya first before we come to that, though. What was it like talking to him? and, And what more can we expect from Yaya Toure in the world of football?
0: Well it was I met him on Mother's Day. It was lovely cuz um cheered me up because my were there cakes,
2: um, were they cakes? <laughs> oh, he,
0: yeah, he bought he did he bought, he bought uh, an afternoon tea. So that was nice of him, wasn't lovely. it? Lovely. My son has predicted Liverpool's chances of winning the quadruple at 3%. So, a mathematically spot on. It just sounds so depressing, doesn't it? <laughs> anyway, so I met Yaya Tori and um I have to admit from what I'd read of him talking of cakes there's the um the birthday cake thing which has been done and dusted because it was his agent previous agent who said it not him his mistake was not to um distance himself from it straight away but the other stuff i've read i, I thought he sounded a little too you know uh, self-confident perhaps is the way to put it took himself a bit too seriously but actually i spent quite a long time with him and he's he's very, very humble um he's very aware that if he wants what he wants to be is a is a manager at the highest level ultimately but he's very aware that to think that just because he's Yaya Tory, he can get a job and do it is not the right way he, he admits he was too impatient initially took two assistant managers jobs one in russia one in ukraine and then realized what he has to do is start start at the bottom if you like so he's going through his coaching badges he's doing his UEFA for a now he'll enroll on the UEFA for pro in the autumn he's uh combining that with working at the uh, spurs academy at the moment he, the way he spoke about football, what he, what he, I mean, he even knows what he'll wear on the touchline when he is a manager, and he's going to look a bit like Pep Guardiola. Actually, he's going for the casual look. Doesn't believe in a suit. Doesn't believe in a tracksuit, but he, he's got the right attitude, and he was, he was humble enough to say that some of the kids at the um, Spurs academy. He's been taken aback by their footballing intelligence and the standard of questions they ask him. It takes it takes somebody to admit that an 18-year-old has made you think twice about the tactical instructions you've put out to them. So he came across incredibly well. But really, the nicest moment of the whole day was... A pair of brothers came over, even though we were hiding in the corner of a hotel. A pair of brothers came over to ask for um, a photograph with him, and he was he was charming. But they then with it, with the, with them were their little sister it was their little sister who looked about six or seven years old. She was sort of gazing at him with big brown eyes, like oh, like he was Father Christmas or something. She couldn't quite believe it, and they said, "Oh, oh, she's called Yaya as well." Quite dismissively, Torre just melted that the. the, the, the this, this this lovely little girl who was looking adoring at him was also called Yaya. So he was calling her over and saying, we'll have, to have our picture together. And he was just, he was genuinely touched and um, very helpful with photos and basically answered all questions and seems a very switched on chap. So I wish him well with his plan
2: to become a coach. Do you think you'll make it to be a Premier League manager?
0: It's very hard to know, but given given that we got people like on this podcast, you call um, Frank Lampard a silver spoon manager because he's just sort of tried to go in at the top. I think the fact that Yaya's recognised pretty quickly, you can't do that. You've got to go in slow and steady. Um, then, he, then he then he has a good chance. Also, he is really going to every manager asking asking for advice and they're all, apart from Pep, he doesn't have Pep Guardiola's phone number, so he can't phone him to ask for advice because the pair of them didn't really get on. But every other manager seems to be very keen to say to him, oh, you know, just just phone me up, ask me questions. And he's doing that. So he's he's getting as much knowledge as he can from every contact he has in his contacts book. So he's willing to learn and he's not doing this sort of act of, do you know who I am? I should have a top job. He's prepared to... Well, to take take his time over it.
2: What I would say is, I'm very surprised. I'm very surprised. And I think his lack of a relationship with Pep Guardiola has maybe affected him already, that he's at Spurs. Given what he's achieved with Manchester City, given what he achieved at Barcelona, obviously both with links to Pep, that he's not coaching... In some capacity at those academies. Maybe there were offers and he declined them. I don't know. But especially Manchester City, amazed.
0: He lives near the um,
2: near Spurs
0: training ground. Okay. And, you know, I'll let Man City
2: know. off. I'm sure he would turn down the opportunity to work with Pep anyway. You know, well, yeah, but not, is he, is he likely
0: to? Is he likely to if he doesn't even have his phone number? I, it doesn't sound promising, does it?
2: Yeah, yeah. And the One Touch Wonders piece was fantastic alison oh um, you. how difficult was it no honestly because it was just like players that you honestly i think one of them came to mind i was like oh yeah him and the rest i was like oh my who are these people so it is real uh, a voyage of discovery if if you like what was it like tracking them down and breaking all of their hearts
0: (laughs) well yeah yeah, this is a, a this is a feature about players who've only touched the ball once in the premier league so not just players who've only played once but I've only touched the ball once. and when this I, I, this has been two years in the making you, because the one player I felt I had to speak to was Christian Naguai from Manchester city who's who touched the ball once and was then sent off, and that was it, which is quite, you know, quite some achievement. <laughs> but he was untraceable. and I was really nervous. I'll say this openly. I was so nervous about writing, he was untraceable. I mean I phoned every club every every route i could think of no one had a workable number or email for him and i was really nervous about writing oh christian's untraceable and then somebody Putting in the comments underneath. Oh, he lives next door to me. What's you talking about? But nobody has yet, so I don't know where he's gone or what he's doing. But he had—I um, would love to have spoken to him because his his story is quite remarkable. He had one touch in the Premier League. He was four years at Man City, summoned one touch in the Premier League, had two knee operations, got sent off in that game where he had three minutes and one touch. Then moved to Belgium, where he scored the fastest goal in Belgian league history. Remarkable.
2: Another excellent piece any other players in there that stood out to you whose stories maybe stood out to you still playing
0: oh well Anthony Grant I you know I mean honestly I'd like to say that you know he's a mate now because <laughs> he, he, he plays for Scunthorpe and uh, he did play for well he was at the Chelsea Academy and his one touch came under Jose Mourinho at Old Trafford when he was 17. And that was supposed to be... I mean, he was really open about it, you know, because I was a bit worried that anyone who had one touch might be a bit embarrassed to revisit the fact that's all they had was one touch. But he was at pains to This wasn't given sentimentally. It was supposed to be the start of something for him at Chelsea. Mourinho had many times told him he, he could be part of his midfield plan. But, you know, he spent a year training with, with the first team and the um, youth teams and then Mourinho goes and Avram Grant comes in and doesn't know who he is and doesn't want to know who he is. And then before you know it, he's a nobody at Chelsea when Mourinho had said, just, just be patient and you'll be somebody. That's, that's how these things happen. You, it doesn't necessarily mean that one touch is something to be a bit embarrassed about he's very proud of his one touch actually
2: good good and listen check this piece out on the times app absolutely fantastic alison rudd well done once again awards will come i'm sure uh, tom clark alison rudd thank you very much we'll be i think we'll play ask alison more often um, you are no offence, Tom, the most interesting person on the podcast. So, I think if, we, if we if we can get some questions in from the listeners, I'm sure it would like, necessary no, end. What? What? Such an unnecessary. Just, I've just sat here listening.
1: I didn't just insult you, you, you know, nice, so very self-deprecating nice you know? conversation. That's literally like kind of scoring a goal and running off with Alison and then booting me and going, "Leave it out. I don't
2: want to celebrate with you." Outrageous. <laughs> uh, listen, thank you so much for being with me for the past hour. or So thank you for listening. And remember, make sure you sign up to The Times and The Sunday Times. Become a subscriber. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We'll see you soon.
0: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.